0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon so that we can take your calls and you can ask questions if you wish to discuss them on the air, Uh, questions about the Bible, about Christianity, anything like that. Uh, Disagreements you might have with the host are welcome as well. The number to call is uh, 844-484-5737. Now the lines are full, so... Don't call right now, but if you call in a few minutes, there's a very good chance several lines may open up, uh, certainly during this half hour. We have an hour together. And so if you call randomly later in the show, you may get through, although if you wait till too long, we may not get to your call. The number again is 844-484-5737. I'd mention again that this uh, coming, uh, well, day after tomorrow, Thursday, and for the following five days, I'll be speaking in different locations near Phoenix, uh, Arizona. And if you are in the Phoenix area and want to know where I'm speaking and where uh, and what about and that kind of thing, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, thenarrowpath.com, and uh, click on the tab that says uh, Announcements, and you'll find all those you'll find all those locations. Uh, likewise, tomorrow night we have a once-a-month event. Once a month, we have a Zoom meeting open to anybody who wishes to call in, 7 o'clock Pacific time in the evening. And uh, you can be a part of that if you want to. Once again, if you want to know how to log in to that event, uh, that Zoom meeting, that's just tomorrow night and uh, the first Wednesday of every month. You can go to the website, thenarrowpath.com, look under announcements, and you'll find the Zoom login information. And we can talk to you and see you. Uh, unlike the radio show, and that's the main way it is unlike the radio show. Uh, it's basically the same format, Q and A. The difference being that we can see each other, and also we're not limited to a single hour. We usually go at least an hour and a half, so that uh, we can hopefully get in more questions or at least give more complete answers. So that happens once a month. That's happening tomorrow night. Again, thenarrowpath.com is the website that, uh, and under announcements you can find out all you need to know about any of these things coming up in the next several days. Um, we're going to go to the phone then and talk to uh, Ken from Michigan. Ken, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling.
1: Yeah, Hi, Steve. Uh, quick question. Are you interested in weighing in on the Alistair Begg uh, fiasco, or maybe you already have and I missed it?
0: I have not. In fact, I haven't even heard of the Alistair Begg fiasco. I always liked his program, but I, I haven't followed his ministry and I haven't heard the news, I'm sorry to say.
1: Oh, maybe okay. It. Well, maybe I'll ask you tomorrow on Zoom.
0: Okay, but I'll have to learn about it somewhere. Do you want to tell me what the fiasco is? Or?
1: Well, he. It, uh, back in September, he said something about. Uh, he advised a grandmother to go to her grandson's uh, gay wedding.
0: Uh uh-huh.
1: huh. He, he asked her, Does he know where you stand on this? And yes. And he said, Well, I would suggest you surprise him and do the opposite of what you, he would think you would do, and, and go to the um, go to the wedding and take a gift. And everything has hit the fan. I mean,
2: John, well, McCur- I'll say this: I
0: yeah, will say boy. this. Um, I, I I would not give that same advice. Uh, that would not be the advice I would give. But uh, on the other hand, the question of whether to attend a gay wedding of a relative is a very hot. Um, conundrum right now, and uh, it's a new one, of course. Christians never had to think about this uh, 20 years ago and, and prior to that. Most, most Christian moral conundrums and theological issues have had thousands of years to be sorted out, but there never has been a time previously that Christians had to make a decision about whether to go to a son or daughter's wedding to someone of the same sex because such marriages never existed in any society, and Christians never had to make that decision. And, of course, there are two sides to that. I, 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 I know what I would do, uh, and it wouldn't be what Alistair Begg recommended, and I, therefore my, my disagreement on his counsel about that. But on the other hand, there are two sides to it. I mean, I would say don't because you're giving your tacit approval uh, to, you know, a, a something that is uh, a sin, and therefore, I would not uh, agree to it. Um, although we would have to say, would you do the same thing if your Christian child was getting married to a non-Christian spouse, which would be something we also would think is not okay, but lots of Christians would attend that. Um, <clears throat> there really needs to be uh, this. This can be more nuanced than most people think. It's, it's not enough simply to say uh, same-sex marriage is an abomination before God. Uh, the question of how Christians are to react to the presence of abominations in the sight of God in different situations is not always easy to tell because we do live in a pluralistic society where, you know, we have to endure the fact that our neighbors living next door to us might be doing things that God finds to be an abomination, but we don't go and, uh, you know, burn their house down or something. Uh, and, but the, the thing is that, uh, of course, by by not going, it may, as and this may be Alistair Begg's thinking, uh, it may confirm to their mind that Christians are unloving and judgmental and, you know, you know the worst sort of people. Um, and we don't like people to get that impression of us. It, I would have to say uh, that I would not attend such a wedding because my understanding of what it means to attend a wedding is perhaps different than some other people's is <coughs> for me to attend that wedding means I'm giving my endorsement to it, um, and I'm, you know, I believe the guests at a wedding are there to celebrate something, and also to hear two parties make vows to each other, and to be among those who are committed to, uh, as witnesses, uh, insisting that they keep their vows. I mean, this is the main reason for having public vows at all, is in a wedding, is so that the witnesses can say, I heard that, and uh, if you ever come to a place where you're inclined to uh, disavow your vows, that the witnesses can say, no, wait, we we heard you say that. You've got to, you know, you're help, we're holding you to that. <clears throat> but, of course, if you hear two people of the same sex make such vows, those are vows that you can't approve of in the first place. And why are you there then? Are you going to hold them accountable to keep those vows? Um, you know, I, I want to say this, that... Um, I, I'm not so thin-skinned that you know I, I, it would enrage me that two people are getting married who who ought not to get married. That's not my not my problem. That's theirs. Um, uh, and there are certain things that might transpire at a wedding of that sort that would kind of turn my stomach, but not everything about it would. I suppose I could turn my back and close my eyes when those things were happening. But uh, the, the thing is that uh, I I wouldn't celebrate it because I don't want to give the impression that it is something that a Christian can celebrate. Now, you know, sometimes people who attend weddings are not by their attendance saying that they're celebrating it and may have well registered their objections to it and are only showing up. Um, well, I, I don't know why they would say they're showing up, but I, you know, they don't want to seem unloving. This is very a, a very difficult choice for many people to make. I, I, I know what I would do, but... Um, you know, if a pastor has reasoned this out biblically and, you know, he knows and, and the one he's counseling knows that this is not a godly thing that's going on. Um, I can see him making some kind of suggestions that might differ than those from those that I would make. And I, you know, I don't think that we should understand Alistair Begg to be condoning same-sex wedding by giving this kind of counsel. You know, if he is condoning it, then, of course, that should become a scandal in his ministry. But I don't think yeah. he is. I don't think no. he is. Uh,
3: no. And
0: therefore, he, he's, he's giving counsel concerning a Christian's reaction to something that neither of them condone, uh, which is a controversial suggestion. Because, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in a public place and someone sitting near you starts cursing and using the name, Lord, the name of the Lord in vain, this is offensive to you. Now, should you get up and confront them about it? Or should you just, you know, leave? Or should you just endure it? Different Christians would give different answers to that. Now, all the Christians in question would find the behavior objectionable, and none of them are supporting it. But different Christians have different ideas about how and when they ought to confront the things that unbelievers are doing. And to a certain extent, we have to um, you know, not confront some of the things that unbelievers do, because we, we simply couldn't, we couldn't get anything done if we're, you know, every time a non-Christian does something we object to, we, we make it our business to confront it. Um, Paul, of course, said that we should not um, judge those who are outside the church, but we should judge those who are inside the church, because God judges those who are outside. He said that, of course, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, at the end of that chapter. And... Uh, so you know if unbelievers are doing something sinful uh well the, paul suggests that's not necessarily our business to correct them but if if believers are doing something sinful then it is our business to correct them uh so that i mean these are these are hard issues to juggle and so you know if i disagree with the counsel that uh, alistair beg gave to that woman on this occasion i would just say i disagree i wouldn't uh uh, it sounded like you started to say that John MacArthur is labeled him, you know, a, a heretic or something. You know, oh, I, I have. I have. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it,
1: it's all over well, the Christian media. And my wife did correct me. It's a transgender.
0: Oh, transgender wedding. Oh, no, yeah. I don't yeah,
1: know I, what that difference is.
0: It's the same. Uh, to my mind, it's the same. Uh, I mean, I don't believe. I mean, I believe both of those would be objectionable to Christians on the same grounds. Uh, and therefore, the question is, by coming to the wedding, is the Christian communicating, I support this? Or are they saying, I'm simply gracious enough to endure it without confrontation? Now, that's really the question. If the Christian's actions are interpreted as saying, I support this, then, of course, that's, that's not a message that a Christian wants to send uh anyway yeah that's that's a very big conundrum for people. We can talk about it more at the on the zoom meeting if you want uh tomorrow, but those are my initial reactions having just heard it okay thanks okay Ken, thanks for your call uh Jimmy from Staten Island New York. welcome to the narrow path. Thanks for calling
2: oh thanks for taking my call. how are you doing Steve mm-hmm. good uh can you read matthew twenty twenty eight
0: sixteen uh yes I can read. Oh, you want me to read it? Okay. Let me find it here. Uh Uh-huh.
2: I have two Um, verses that I would like you to read.
0: Okay. Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them.
2: Okay. Okay. Now, would you say that this mountain was chosen by Jesus, or was it just any mountain that the disciples wanted to go to, or was there a specific mountain where Jesus wanted them to go?
0: Well, they, Jesus had prearranged to meet them there. So, obviously, they, if they went to some different mountain, they wouldn't find him there because right. he had arranged to meet them at a certain place. Right.
2: Okay. So, it's a specific mountain chosen by Jesus where he wanted to meet them. Okay. Correct. Is that correct?
0: Well, that's what it says. Yeah. It says a mountain okay. which Jesus had appointed for them. Right.
2: Can, can you read Acts 13.48,
0: please? Acts 13.48? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'm getting there. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay?
2: Okay, so it's the Greek word, Greek uh, verb tasso. It's the exact same word we just read. So, my question to you is I don't understand how you can say that specific people were chosen by God to believe and without going toe to toe with you right now I'm going to take my answer over to you. how do you reconcile this
0: wait a minute I, do, I don't believe it I don't believe that certain people were chosen by God to believe I know that oh, but okay. here it says, it.
2: as many as were ordained to eternal life believe so the only ones that believed are the ones that were ordained to eternal life
0: ok yeah I'll be glad to address that I've done it many times
2: Okay, thanks.
0: Okay, Jimmy. Thanks for your call. Yeah, this word tasso uh, is sometimes translated ordained it, or appointed. Very commonly it's appointed. It's a military term. It has to do with uh, people being ranked in a certain order and things like that. It's used a variety of ways in Scripture. Uh, for example, the same word and the same tense is used in uh, 1 Corinthians 16.15 where Paul said, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, and that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves. The word is tasso there. They've appointed themselves. They've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Now, here we have some people who are devoted to serving the saints. It specifically says they've devoted themselves. Uh, in Acts 13.48, it doesn't say who devoted these people to eternal life. Maybe they devoted themselves to it. Maybe they desired it. In other words, they were inclined toward it. And why would I say that? Well, for one thing, because it fits the rest of biblical theology. But more than that, it fits the passage. Because in verse 46, two verses earlier, when Paul was preaching in the synagogue there in Pisidia, Antioch, uh, he says, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, I meaning the Jews But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we go to the Gentiles. And then it says in verse 48, and as many as were devoted to eternal life, believe. Now, there's two groups in the synagogue. There are those who Paul said had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And there were those who were devoted to eternal life. Now, since those who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life are they had done that for themselves, then we don't know, but it would be reasonable to suggest that the opposite group that were devoted to eternal life had devoted themselves to pursue eternal life. Some didn't want it, some did. The group that didn't, were told it was their decision not to, we're not told whose decision it was for them to be devoted to eternal life, the, the other group. You're suggesting God appointed them to eternal life, but not every appointment is God's. Uh, after all, I just pointed out the same word and the same tense of the word is used in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. Where the household of Stephanas devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So it's not impossible. I'm not saying that's the only way this can be understood. But it's certainly to suggest that God had devoted these people to become believers. Is First of all, it doesn't say that at all. Even if we make God the one who's appointed them, it doesn't say he appointed them to believe. It says they were appointed to eternal life. And they believed. Now, perhaps they believed on their own. And God had, on the basis of the fact that they would believe, previously included them in the group that he devoted to have eternal life. It doesn't say that they were appointed to believe. It says they believed. And this group that believed, let's, let's just take your view, that this is God who devoted them to eternal life. Well, God has devo- decided that those who believe believe, will have eternal life. So this is these people are part of that group because they believed. But this would be true even if all, the only thing God appointed was that those who believe will have eternal life. There's a group of people who will have eternal life. They happen to be whoever it is that believes. These people believed and therefore they were part of that devoted group. It doesn't mean they were devoted prior to their believing, although they might have been. It doesn't say they're, pre, it doesn't say they're predestined. It You know, it's, it's even possible that as they heard the word and their hearts were open to it and they were inclined to believe that God himself did move them, you know, all the way in to eternal life. We don't know. The word itself has plenty of uh, ambiguity about it. But I will say this as you read through the book of Acts and you read about uh, why people believed. Uh, and, and, the book of Acts does, you know, Luke in writing it, he does, he did hold a particular theology about this. He either was a Calvinist or not. If he was a Calvinist, then he thought that, that people believed because God predestined them to believe and made them believe, because that's what Calvinists believe. Uh, Luke never says that very clearly. Uh, I mean, if, if he says it anywhere, it's here, but it's not necessarily what he's saying here. You know, I mean, this, this would be taken at least two other ways the wording would allow. Um, but everywhere else, we read that people believe because they, uh, for example, in Berea, it says the people were more noble than the Thessalonians. Okay, these people are not, like Calvinists say, uh, totally depraved. It says these people were more, these are these were unbelievers. They were more noble than other unbelievers because they heard Paul gladly and they searched the scriptures diligently to see if these things were so and therefore they believed. That, of course, is in Acts chapter 17, just a, a few verses, uh, a few chapters later than this, in verse 11. So, uh, I mean, that's fairly common. I mean, sometimes it says uh, that the people who believe on, in, in Acts chapter 2, uh, their hearts were pricked. Their hearts were pricked by the preaching of uh, Peter. And, and therefore, they came and said, what must, what must we do? Um, so, I mean, it, Luke, in writing the book of Acts, does not lay out some kind of a consistent theology that when people believed it was, you know, it was preordained that they would, and, and it was the sovereign um, action of God upon them that made this happen. In fact, Luke never hints at it elsewhere. Now, sometimes they want to bring up uh the case of, uh, in Philippi, of course, Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, and it says that when she and her household, well, let me, let me turn earlier here, um, verse 14, Acts 16:14. Now a certain woman named Lydia, heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Calvinist like this too, because see, she listened to him because God opened her heart to do so. Well, that's true. But what was she like before that? Totally depraved? No. She's described as a worshiper of God before before God before she heard Paul. She was already a, a, a woman who worshipped God. And because she worshipped God, she was therefore one of the elect, or I should say one of the uh, believing remnant in Israel. And uh, and because she worshipped God, God opened her heart to listen to Paul. Um, but she was not, prior to that point, uh, antagonistic toward God, like Calvinists say unbelievers are. So you don't really find anything like uh, Calvinistic theology in the book of Acts or in my opinion in the whole Bible but uh, the one verse you want me to see Calvinism is is ambiguous enough that it's got at least two other interpretations that the wording would uh, would support so it doesn't say there that anyone in uh, Pisidian Antioch was predestined to become a believer it doesn't say that and uh, the wording is very different than would support that view so that'd be my answer, Jimmy. I appreciate your call. Let's talk to Steve in Lakewood, California. Hi, Steve.
1: Yes, hi, brother. Thank you so much for your ministry uh-huh. and uh, taking my call and question. Okay, <clears throat> my question is uh, regarding Romans chapter one, uh, verses 18 through 23, and uh, or you could even go to the end of the chapter. But my question is verse 18. Uh, How is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? And how can we see God's wrath? Is it just because he gave them up to a reprobate mind as the verses proceed down?
0: That's exactly what it means. Yeah. When he says the wrath of God is revealed, he says because, and then he begins to give a, a justification for that statement. Um, and what he does say is these people did have access to knowledge of God, but they didn't want to have that knowledge of God. They, they didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to glorify him. They didn't want to be thankful, it says. And so he, uh, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God to the image of uh, corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts, meaning they made idols and worshipped them. It says, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness uh, so they could do what they wanted to do. Now, an unbeliever might say, why call that the wrath of God? I'd love it if God let me do what I want to do. Yeah, that's because you're stupid. I mean, the only hope a sinner has is if God doesn't give you up to do what you want to do. Because what you want to do is going to end up in your destruction and your condemnation. And uh, it's the mercy of God that people who are committed to a life of sin, uh, that God makes that difficult for them that God interrupts that, that God interferes with that, that God convicts them of their sin, uh, that God doesn't just let them go because they're running toward a cliff, which if they get there before God stops them, uh, they're going over. And so, you know, God's interference in our way of life when we're choosing sin is his mercy toward us. If he says, "Ah, oh, well, I've had enough of you, I'm going to just let you go. Well, the place you're going is not a place that you're going to want to be when you get there. And God knows it. But that's his wrath. His wrath is he gives them up. And as you read the further verses, verse 26 also says that God gave them up to vile passions. And then in verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased minds. So what happens is the person who has reason to believe in God but chooses to ignore God is uh, basically insulting God and insulting the truth, and God's position is, and this comes out also in Second 2 Thessalonians two ten, um, you know, he, because they did not receive the love of the truth, God gave them uh, uh, or gave them over to deception basically. Um, God says, okay, if you if you if you don't love the truth, you're not worthy of it. You're not going to get it, uh, and you're going to live with the lies you choose, and there are consequences for those lies. Um, so it is the wrath of God that he would leave them to their own devices, even though that may be what they think they want most. Oh, this is the wrath of God? Hey, give me more of that. You know, let me go my own way. Don't let me feel any guilt about my sins. Don't interfere. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, obviously a very stupid position to take, but many people probably have that reaction. But those who understand what's going on, God especially knows, uh, could see, well, by giving up on them, by, uh, you know, by discontinuing his interventions uh, and letting them go to their own destruction, this is his wrath toward them. And so, yes, that's what I think Romans one eighteen is describing. Listen, we need to take a break, but we're far from done. We have another half hour coming up, so don't go away. At this point, we just want you to know the Narrow Path is a listener-supported uh, ministry. If you'd like to uh, help us stay on the air, you may. We'll let you do that. Uh, we'll t- even tell you how. You can write to us at the Narrow Path, PO Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. You can also donate if you want at the website. Everything at our website is free, but you can donate if you're just you know compelled to do so by your own heart. It's thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go away.
3: Steve Gregg has written a number of highly favorably reviewed books, which you can find at your online booksellers, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble. His books are Revelation, Four Views, Hell, Three Christian Views, and the two-volume work on the kingdom of God called Empire of the Risen Sun. Find them by searching the name Steve Gregg at Amazon or other booksellers.
0: Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for uh, another half hour, taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we'd be glad to talk to you about those. Uh, If you have a difference of opinion from the host, I'm always glad to talk about that, too. Uh, The number to call is 844-484-5737. Right now, I'm looking at one open line. Again, the number is 844 484 Our next caller is Paul calling from Nampa, Idaho. Hi, Paul. Good to hear from you.
1: Good afternoon, Steve. Um, so I have a couple questions for you. Uh, number one, I'd like to get your take on the so-called Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and who you believe that's referring to.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I don't think we have to uh, wonder about that because it actually tells us in the chapter that's addressing the king of Babylon. Um, it says that in verse 5 or verse 4. Uh, God says to Isaiah, take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, and then we have this long poetic chapter of denunciation of this uh, arrogant king and his ambition and how he will be humiliated as God brings him down. In the midst of that, that king is referred to as Lucifer, at least in some Bibles. The King James has Lucifer there. The new King James has Lucifer. It shouldn't, because Lucifer is not um, the name of any king of Babylon. In fact, it's not the name of anybody. It's uh, in the Hebrew, which is what Isaiah wrote in. The word Lucifer isn't even there, which is why modern translations don't have it. If you read most modern translations, you won't find the word Lucifer there in, uh, in uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve, and nor should you. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible either. This is the only place in some Bibles that the word Lucifer occurs, but it shouldn't because Lucifer is actually a Latin word. It's not from the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah never heard the word Lucifer anywhere. He wrote in Hebrew. And the word he did use here is uh, morning star means morning star or light bearer. And, uh, and what happened was when the Hebrew was translated into Latin by Jerome, he chose the Latin word for light bearer, which is Lucifer, and put it in there. Now, for some reason, uh, when Christians read this afterwards in the Latin, although the whole, the whole book was written in Latin, you know, it was, uh, they were reading the whole book in Latin, they for some reason took the word uh, light bearer or morning star, Lucifer, and took that as if it was a proper name, although it was actually never the proper name of uh, any king of Babylon. And then when the English translations were made, for some reason they retained this Latin word in this place, which does not appear in the Hebrew and really does not belong in the English. It's a a Latin word. It's not a name. And uh, it's just a a freakish thing of translation that the early English translations treated it as a name uh, and didn't translate it modern translators realize it's not a name and it's, you know, it's something that needs to be translated just like the other Hebrew words. And the, Lucifer is not a Hebrew word, but there is a Hebrew word there in the passage. And instead of sticking in a Latin word uh, in an English translation, they, they usually make an English translation of that Hebrew word. And therefore, the word Lucifer doesn't show up there. Um, now, the, that the, the address to the so-called Lucifer here, is not written to an angel, but to a man. Uh, it's very clear when he says you'll be brought down to Sheol, in verse 15, to the lowest depths of the pit. It says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, is this the man who made the earth to tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness, etc., etc.? The king of Babylon is who it's talking about. He's the man. The devil's not a man. Uh, the devil is a spirit. This is talking about a man. And, uh, it's, I mean, it couldn't be clearer. We're told it's the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon, in every case, was always a man. Which king of Babylon was that? I don't know. It could very well be Belshazzar, because this is, of course, talking about the humiliation of the king of Babylon. And, and uh, when Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, it was Belshazzar who was the king. Uh, the name of the king is not found in the passage, but that's, that's not surprising. Most of the prophets who spoke about the fall of Tyre or Edom or Moab or the Philistines don't mention the names of the kings that were reigning at the time, nor do they mention the name of the king of Babylon but but the word that's uh, in some Bibles rendered Lucifer is not the king's name, and it's not anyone's name. It's just a word in in the Latin Bible that should have been translated like the rest of the Bible into English in our English translations.
1: I appreciate that um, final question. Um what are your thoughts on the idea of Satan as a fallen angel?
0: Well, I think it's a, a real possibility. Uh, we don't have any actual verses in the Bible that, that refer to Satan as an angel. Uh, we're told that he has angels. You know, in Revelation, uh, chapter 12, talks about the, the dragon and his angels, and the dragon is, is Satan, but we're not told that the dragon is an angel. He has angels, just like God has angels, and God's not an angel, so... Uh, God has angels, the devil has angels, but neither God nor the devil are necessarily angels. Certainly God isn't, and probably the dragon isn't either. But he's some kind of spiritual being. It says in in he me in Ephesians, I think it's chapter two, it talks about how um, you know he's the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. This Satan is, um, so he's a spirit, but not necessarily an angel. There's many kinds of spirits, no doubt. There's human spirits too, and then there's other creatures in heaven that John and describes that are not, they're actually distinguished from the angels also in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Um, so I, there's nothing that would say the devil is an angel. Uh, now, the Bible does say there are fallen angels. We're told that in Luke, uh, excuse me, Jude, uh, I think it's verse 6, if I'm not mistaken, and Second uh, Peter chapter 2, I think it's verse 4, um, we find reference to angels that sinned. But we're not told that Satan was one of those angels who sinned. He might have been, but, but to say so would go far beyond anything the Bible actually tells us. We are never told that the devil was an angel. And, uh, and therefore, to say that he's a fallen angel would go beyond what we actually have scriptural authority to say. Okay, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Paul. Good talking to you. Aaliyah from Arlington, Washington. Welcome to The Narrow Path
4: hi Steve. Um, hi. I was listening to your verse by verse lectures or it could have been a topical lecture and um, it was on the body of Christ and you had said something really insightful um, about you mentioned something about ligaments holding the body together and oh, yeah. um, I was trying to revisit that I didn't I, I listened to the verse by verse lecture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I started listening, and I, I couldn't find it in there. And then I did Romans chapter twelve, and I got I listened to all but the last two minutes. And so far, I haven't found it there. It could have been in Strategies for Unity. Um, I'm I was wondering if you know um, which verse verse lecture uh, you would stick that in, or um, in which topical lecture, or if not, if you could just give a a brief statement because i don't remember what you said about the ligaments i just remember when i heard it a couple years ago it was really insightful and interesting. It's probably about. it
0: was it was probably uh ephesians 4 that i was talking okay about, from uh, where he talks about in verse 16 from whom that is from christ the head the whole body meaning the body of christ the church joined and knit together by what every joint supplies According okay. to the effective working of every part, does its share and causes growth of the body to the edifying of itself in love. The word joint, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm not sure if if the if that exact word ligament is used in some translations there, but um, yeah, I, I, probably the point I was making is that in speaking about uh, us as members of a body, you know, a, a hand, a foot, an arm, a leg, or whatever. Um, a joint is is the relationship between two members right i mean that's that's i think probably the point you heard me making it seems yeah. to me like yeah. that's the point i would make and uh, in other words uh, an elbow or a knee is a joint where it's a relationship between two other bones two other members of the body that makes them you know function together uh in a way that they would not be able to without that relationship without the, and uh, therefore uh, what the joints supply to the body, we could perhaps uh, paraphrase as what the relationships between the members supply to the body. Uh, that is, it's not just that each of us has a function, but each of us is in a series of relationships uh, with other Christians, and those relationships supply uh, something toward the growth of the body of Christ, at least they're supposed to.
4: Okay, well, thank you so much. I'll look into that verse-by-verse lecture in Ephesians 4. I really appreciate it, Steve.
0: All right, Aaliyah. Thanks for your call. God bless.
4: Yep. Bye.
0: Bye now. Uh, Ricky from Indiana, welcome to the Narrow Path.
3: Uh, hey, Steve. Hi. Long-time long time listener, first-time caller. Oh, well, welcome. Thank you so much for your ministry. I really appreciate it. You're probably the best Bible teacher that I know, so... I really wanted to get this question in with you. I was having a good conversation with a friend. This is really about the nature of the original man, Adam, and then the nature of Jesus Christ. And if you bear with me, I'll give you a little explanation, and then I'll listen for your answer. So a good friend of mine, we're talking about what was Adam's original nature, because it appears that Adam uh was good from what the Bible says about what God says about Adam, and that he only falls when he is tempted by the woman. It would appear that until the woman, the woman was created Eve, that Adam had lived in the garden, met with God in the cool of the day, and that he had to have walked past the tree that he was forbidden to take of. Uh, and surely Satan would have tried to tempt him, or maybe did not try to tempt him because he thought that maybe. Adam would not be tempted by that. He fell with ease. But I want to get a little bit further into this and keep that in mind. We were talking about what was the original design of sex and relations between men and women because it appears that Adam, many preachers that we come up under, they kind of joke around that when Adam saw Eve uh, next to him after she was formed, he said, whoa, man, and he was very surprised because of her body and he was enticed. But from the scriptures it shows that Adam and Eve did not even know each other were naked. And it doesn't say that Adam knew Eve until after the fall. So we were talking and we were saying, could it be that Adam's original nature, and as it pertains to sex, is that he did not have the same nature or sinful nature as we as men and women have right now. And therefore, sex and the lust and the desire after a woman or vice versa, a woman for a man, came from the fallen nature of sin because they saw each other after Eve was formed almost in an innocent way, the same way that children see each other, that they don't recognize their nakedness, and therefore they're able to move about without feeling any type of shame or even the lust lustful desires that we have. And fast forward, I'm going to stop now after I make this statement, fast forward to Jesus Christ. When he came on the scene, one of the challenges for many men is how did Jesus Christ abstain from any type of lustful desire for women? And being, then the explanation that we came up with is that because Adam in the beginning did not see the woman the way it's been described as a lustful desire for women is a natural affection, could it be that that lustful desire for women is actually a desire that comes in a sinful nature and therefore Jesus Christ, in his state as in the second Adam, he saw women the same way that the first Adam saw women, that he sees women as not something to desire, because as Adam, he was innocent in his thinking, and therefore he was able to move about around Mary and Martha and other women, and he saw them in an innocent way, because he did not have that desire that we have as men and women for sex. And is that, is the whole desire from lust and sex really a result of the fallen nature. And I'm saying this, this is the last thing I'm gonna say, Stephen, I'll take your response, is that because it's often said when you hear individuals at conferences and things talking about the desire for sex. they'll say it's good, it's good that you have a desire for a woman. It's good you have a desire. That's natural. But is that actually a natural affection of the fallen state and not the original state of Adam and the second man Adam Jesus Christ. And I'll take your response.
0: Okay, and thank you for your call. Uh, Well, there's a lot there. First of all, the Bible does say in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in all points the same as we are. Now, uh, men and women are tempted in quite a variety of ways. Perhaps one of the most common ways in the case of men would be in in the area of sexual desire. They're also tempted for other things. They're, they're, They're greedy for money or they're or their pride, you know good the specimen so there's there's different temptations, but certainly sexual temptation is is high on the list of temptations that men struggle with, and I guess women probably do too in some measure, uh, maybe a great deal more than I know. but because um, I'm not in their skin, I don't know, but the point is that if Jesus was tempted at all points like we are, um, then I would think he he had to have the sexual temptations too. But it does say, "Yet without sin, and it's entirely possible to be tempted and not to sin i'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's possible for the average man in his own strength to resist all temptation at all times, but it certainly is possible for a man to have feelings of attraction uh, even of a you know of a sexual nature to another person and to and to resist it and say no um I think a lot of people mistakenly think that when Jesus talked about looking at a woman to lust after her, he's talking about the phenomenon of a man seeing a woman and feeling sexual desire. That's not what he's talking about. He's he's not talking about looking at a woman and feeling sexual desire. He's talking about looking at a woman to lust after her. That is, he's doing it to satisfy his pure interest in another man's wife, uh, though he may not be seducing her. He's, uh, as as it were, in in his own imagination, enjoying that. But, but but being tempted by somebody doesn't mean you're indulging that. That that when you're tempted to, you will either indulge it or you won't. Jesus did not, and and nor do many men uh, who are you know who walk with in the spirit. You know, if we walk in the spirit, we'll not indulge the lust of the flesh. The Bible says. Uh, That doesn't mean we never have the temptation, but then Jesus had temptation. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. That's something we've got got to get over, first of all. Secondly, the Bible doesn't really say that Adam and Eve didn't know that each other were naked until they fell, as if they couldn't see each other's genitals or something like that until that happened. Some people uh, have suggested maybe they were just clothed in bright light and stuff until they fell, like the glory of God, and they couldn't even see each other's bodies. Uh, Well, I don't see any basis for that. I realize that what it does say is that after they sinned, they knew they were naked and they sought to cover themselves. But but they knew they were naked in a sense that suddenly that was a, 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 a thing noticeable to them that they wanted to cover up. Before that, at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. It doesn't say they didn't know they were naked. It just the, the whole concept of being naked versus covered up was a not not something that they had given any thought to, uh, because no one they'd never seen anyone wear clothes. Uh, so in a sense, you know, if someone said, "Are you naked?" Uh, Adam and Eve might have to say, "Well, first of all, tell me what that means." <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, well, it means not wearing any clothes. Oh well, what are clothes? You know, I mean, it's like. To say that they didn't think of themselves as naked until after they were guilty and, th- and then they were ashamed of it is uh, is not to say that they didn't notice each other's sexual parts or have any attraction to them. You have to realize that the reason that men and women, or animals for that matter, feel sexual attraction to the opposite sex is because of, um, you know, chemistry, frankly, uh, chemistry in the body that God put there. Uh, testosterone, estrogen, other kinds of chemicals uh, in the body are what cause men and women to be sexually attracted to each other. Uh, the devil didn't create those chemicals. God did. And the reason he did is, frankly, because a man can't really have sex unless he gets aroused. A woman might, uh, you know, without being aroused, be, you know, used for sex, but a man, it's a different thing. He's got, he's got to have a sexual arousal in order to even perform. And, and they're and, and, and God told them when he created them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, he, he didn't make them like amoebas that could just divide and multiply that way. He made them like the sexual creatures that he had already made, which also were not sinning in their reproductive. He actually told the, the animals the, to be fruitful and multiply. And then he made Adam and Eve, he even told them to be fruitful and multiply. So he commanded them to have sex. And if there was no sexual attraction... Uh, then I, have, I would have to assume there were no chemicals, no, none of the chemistry that's in people now. and We'd have to assume that chemistry somehow was injected into them by the devil at the tree or something, which is not very reasonable to me. Um, I think God made men and women to be sexually attracted to each other, but also to curtail those uh, attractions to use only in the proper way. I think the same thing is true about our desire for sleep. It's a good thing to sleep. We need it. But it's not a good thing to sleep all day and and neglect your work. It's a good thing to eat. But it's not a good thing to, you know, just eat all day and eat just what tastes good to you and so forth. In other words, to turn wholesome desires into corrupted, totally, you know, self-indulgent things, it becomes an abuse of them. Um so I think Adam and Eve had sex drive before they sinned. Um, I don't think they were ignorant of the fact they were naked, except I don't think they thought in those categories. Uh, to us, naked is a category that is opposed to being covered. But they had never been covered. The, the idea had never occurred to them. So to say, well, they didn't know they were naked, I guess they might not have known they were naked because they didn't know the word naked. But they certainly could see each other i believe and if they couldn't then i'm not sure how they were expected to reproduce but anyway um yeah i am not i'm not going to follow that that with you there i don't think that sex between married parties is sin uh, especially since god commanded uh humans who had no other way to have children than to have sex uh, he commanded them to have children a lot of them fill the earth and so that was that was the commission god gave them um Did he intend for them to not enjoy sex, and then suddenly after they sinned, they would enjoy it? Uh, I don't think so. That would suggest that the devil is the author of pleasure, and God's trying to withhold it. Uh, The the devil isn't the author of pleasure. The Bible says God is the author of pleasure. Every good gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Uh, The Bible says in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is fullness of joy. God is the author of pleasure. But the devil simply wants to corrupt our desire for pl- pleasure to lead us into behaviors that, are, that might be pleasurable but are wrong. And so Adam and Eve should have resisted whatever temptation. Of course, they weren't tempted to sexual sin because for them there would be no possibility of sexual sin. They, were, they didn't have other partners they could cheat on each other with. But, um, but they, they were tempted by physical desire for food. And uh, we, we shouldn't be saying that, you know, to enjoy your food is somehow a result of the fall also. That would be to suggest that God made people with all kinds of dialogical needs, but he didn't want them to enjoy the process of meeting those needs. But then the devil came along, and he was our friend. He, you know, we still had to do those things, but he made it enjoyable. I don't think so. I, I think God is the source of all pleasure and all joy, and the devil can't create any of that. He just tries to use it to corrupt us. And uh and he that's how Adam and Eve were corrupted, I believe. Uh Calvin from uh Maine. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hello Steve. Thank you for having me on. Sure. I have a question about the Lord's Supper. There we did a little Bible study in First Corinthians eleven a couple weeks ago and and it led to some questions about what we take for communion. We I've grown up taking just regular bread and uh, There's three folks in our church now that won't take communion because it's not unleavened bread. Is there any scripture to support that anywhere, Steve? Well, no. No, there's not. I mean, I guess they would get that from the fact that when Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper, they were having a Passover meal. And the Passover meal uh, and all the meals of that whole week were eaten without leavened bread. I mean, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days long. And uh, Passover was included in that. They weren't allowed to have any leaven in their bread and so the, for that week. So uh, uh, the, the Passover, where Jesus ate with the disciples, was eaten with unleavened bread. Uh, there's no command that we are supposed to uh, keep the Passover in the Jewish manner. There's no command uh, that we are supposed to eat it specifically with unleavened bread or specifically with wine, which is what they used. I mean, some churches use wine, some use grape juice um you know this is not this is not what it's about uh it's not about those kinds of incidentals uh it's about remembering christ so sure. i mean i mean we we it's like baptism okay baptism is another thing we're supposed to do uh well do we have to um do we have to baptize in a river or can it be in a lake or can it be indoors in a in an artificial uh container of water i mean what uh, you know John the Baptist and jesus seem, seemingly did it in a river, so do we consider that the baptism isn 't okay unless we do it in a river? I think this is getting legalism uh, you know out of control Yes sir yes sir. I wanted to, I, I thought the same thing about well, we 're using grape juice, not wine, and you know yep. but, but i wasn 't sure and, I, and really I, I want to go to the word of God to, to get my answers, Steve, so thank you very much all right, thank you so much for your call. God bless you. I don't have much time, but Ralph from Connecticut, if you can use a couple of minutes, you've got it. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, Steve, in in Exodus, Moses where God wanted to kill him. I'm a little confused on that. Yeah, in Exodus chapter 4, when God had sent Moses to go to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, uh, Moses had neglected something that was very important. He had not circumcised his son. Moses was a Jew the Jews were commanded to circumcise their sons on the eighth day, and Moses, for some reason, had neglected that. And uh, therefore, now that he was called away from shepherding sheep to go and become a prophet of God to stand before Pharaoh, it was important that he have his own laundry clean before he goes and you know points the finger at Pharaoh's dirty laundry. And so one of the things he had neglected was to circumcise his son. He, there was an area of disobedience in Moses' own life, therefore, and what's you know who is he to confront Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that he should obey God if he Moses himself is not doing so, and so this was something that had to be dealt with. Now the narrative in, in Exodus 4 tells us that God met him at the encampment and tried to kill him. We don't know what that looks like. You know, some people think he got sick. It's possible God appeared like he, when he wrestled with Jacob and fought with him and he would have killed him. But but Moses' wife circumcised the boy. And and that settled the problem. And uh, in other words, I think we're to understand that God God didn't really want to kill him. He could have done that with a, with an instant stroke if he wanted to. But uh, he was about, to, he would have killed him if, if obedience had not been rendered. And this is something that was rendered so that solved the crisis at the moment. Hey, you've been listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg. We do this Monday through Friday at the same time. Been doing it for 27 years. We're listener-supported. If you'd like to write to us, the address is The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can donate from our website where everything is free. It's thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.